Scientifically speaking, you are less happy in the afternoon. Now, this might not sound like a groundbreaking insight, but in today's show with best-selling author Dan Pink, we'll explain how, how this insight can affect your fitness, your productivity, your chances of getting bail, and even global stock prices. So keep listening to learn the science of perfect timing. But first, here's another show I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. To kick off the show today, let me take you back to 2019 on a fairly chilly February day in London when I went to Wembley Stadium, a 90,000-seater venue in North London, famously dubbed the home of football. I was there to watch a Football Cup final. It was the League Cup final between two of the best teams in Europe, Chelsea and Manchester City. The game was fascinating. Despite Man City thumping Chelsea 6-0 just a month earlier, Chelsea were really holding their own in this final. They created a number of good chances, they hit the post. Everyone was expecting Man City to win the game comfortably, but they didn't. It was 0-0, deep into extra time, and penalties were looming. Nothing could separate the two sides. As I'm sure most of you know, neither can score a winning goal and the game would go to a penalty shootout. So the Chelsea manager at the time, Maurizio Sarri, decided to substitute the goalkeeper. Now this might sound strange, most teams don't substitute goalkeepers, but with penalties about to happen, Sarri decided to bring on the veteran goalkeeper, Caballero. This made sense because Caballero was a penalty expert. He had a record of making several impressive penalty saves. In fact, he'd previously won that exact trophy that they were competing for a few years earlier in a penalty shootout, which he made a bunch of saves in. So the board went up to make the substitution, but then something incredible happened. Something that has never happened before in English football. He's determined to stay on there. He's determined. It's a war of wills at the moment between the goalkeeper and his manager. But you know who the boss is. And it's the boss's word that counts. He's got to go off here. That's not a great sign. When you are publicly trying to ignore your manager, not what you want to see. Shows a lack of authority, really, from the boss. Or certainly, it betrays... A lack of respect from the players, or at least one player. Oh, it's an extraordinary scene. This, this went on for a while. It looked like the substitution might go ahead, but the Chelsea goalkeeper, Ariza Belaga, he refused to go off, much to the manager's dismay. John Moss should make it happen. Well, the players won. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. doesn't undermine you, I don't know what does, and Sarri is absolutely incandescent and with every right of it. Well, he's walking away, he might be walking away from the stadium, is he walking away from the job? Honestly, this was incredible to watch, and the reason I share it is because it's quite easily the worst decision I've ever seen a sports person make. 
the Chelsea goalkeeper, Ariza Belaga, had plenty of time to change his mind. He had plenty of time to say, OK, I need to go off and do the right thing. But he didn't. And this one decision, well, it essentially ruined his career. Ariza Belaga was the world's most expensive goalkeeper. Young and up and coming, he looked set to be Chelsea's number one for years and years to come. But after refusing to come off, he he was really quite dismal in the penalty shootout. He failed to make a really simple save in the shootout that would have kept Chelsea in the game and Chelsea went on to lose. Arguably, they would have won if the goalkeeper had agreed to come off and that penalty expert goalkeeper had come on. After the game, he was dropped from the squad, fined and forced to publicly apologise. Despite a few brief spells in the team, the world's most expensive goalkeeper has never consistently played for Chelsea again. And he's also struggled to secure a move elsewhere, partly because of these rebellious tendencies. So why did Kepa make such a bad decision? Obviously, there's lots of factors that come into this. But one genuine factor, one that I hadn't considered until making this episode was the time of day. See, the game was played in late afternoon, kicking off at 4.30. This is kind of unusual for a final. Most finals are played in the evening. By the time extra time had come around, it was going on 6pm. Would Kepo have behaved differently if it had been an evening match or or a lunchtime match? Look, to be honest, I kind of doubt it. But there is a lot of evidence that suggests our decision-making worsens depending on the time of day. Dan Pink, in his best-selling book, When, shares heaps of examples to highlight this. One is from the Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman and his colleague Alan Kruger. They use DRM to discover, on average, when people are most and least happy. Interestingly, we're most happy when we're having sex, and we're least happy when we're commuting. No surprises there. But they also notice that people are considerably less happy in the afternoon. It seems that being less happy can have a knock-on effect on decisions. Researchers at New York University took transcripts of American public earning calls. These are the calls that major companies do to announce their quarterly performance to shareholders. They are very important, and they dramatically influence the stock price. The researchers looked at 26,000 calls from 2,100 companies over six and a half years. They measured the emotional content of the calls and plotted them against the time of day. Their findings matched Kahneman's. Afternoon calls were more negative, irritable and combative. Okay, that's not a big deal. But that negativity led to temporary stock mispricings for the firms that hosted these calls later in the day and in the afternoon. The researchers state that critical managerial decisions and negotiations should be conducted earlier in the day. Earning calls in the afternoon, they negatively affected stock prices. Incredible, right? Dan Pink shares other examples as well. A study from Cornell looked at 5 million tweets from 2.5 million users across 84 countries and found again that tweets were more negative in the afternoon. Russell Forster, a neurologist at Oxford, went one step further and looked at the change in the output of one's performance based on the time of day. He found that for, on average, most of us, our performance in the afternoon deteriorates to a state where it's akin to drinking the legal amount of alcohol in the morning. That's how, that's how much our performance is affected in the afternoon. And maybe, or maybe just maybe, that's why Chelsea's goalkeeper refused to come off. Maybe if the match had been in the evening or if it had been at lunchtime, he wouldn't have made that decision. 
Or maybe not. Look, I'm not saying that time of day is the defining reason behind all decisions, and I'm definitely not saying it affected this goalkeeper's decision. But what is clear is that time of day can affect decision-making. It doesn't always, but it can. It affects our mood, and if we need to persuade, motivate, and influence others, we should take the time of day into account. To share more, let me hand over to New York Times best-selling author Dan Pink, who walks me through why timing is so important. So we can think of timing in two different dimensions. One is daily timing, one is episodic timing. So how do we configure what we do each day, uh, taking, taking into account where we can our diurnal rhythms? And then the other one is episodic timing, which is that how do beginnings affect us? How do endings affect us? How do, how do um, midpoints affect us? What I've shared so far is all about daily timing, how the time of day affects our decisions. This reveals why we make worse decisions in the afternoon. And it's not just tweets and goalkeepers that show us this, but there's a host of other studies. I'll I'll just litter you of a few more because they are fascinating. Dan Pink in his book shares studies that judges are more likely to give guilty verdicts in the afternoon than in the morning. Participants in a test are more likely to forget strings of syllables in the afternoon. Research shows that people are more likely to show racist tendencies in the afternoon. Danish students in one set of studies performed worse in tests in the afternoon. In fact, they got worse by every hour after lunch. Tests at the last hour of the day produced results that were akin to missing two weeks of school. You're also more likely to cheat on a test in the afternoon and hospital care gets worse as well. All in all, time of day can have a big effect on performance, decisions and mood. But this is not a hard and fast rule for everyone. We each have different internal clocks. Some might find that creative tasks are easier in the afternoon. Others might prefer analytical tasks. However, whichever way you slice it, clearly time of day has an impact. That said, today, Dan and I are going to focus on episodic timing. Episodic timing isn't to do with the time of day, but more different episodes and periods of times, like the beginning, endings and midpoints of projects or events. I think this is more interesting because it's a little more universal. The findings behind this research seems to apply to most people rather than a a subset of people. To kick off, Dan explains how important it is to correctly time the start of your project. There is something that uh, researchers at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, have discovered called the fresh start effect, that people are more likely to endorse and begin behavior change on what are called fresh start dates. So that could be a Monday rather than a Thursday, the first of the month rather than the 13th of the month, the first day of a quarter rather than the 13th day of the quarter. So, so picking those days, so, so to my mind, if you're going to start a change initiative, you're trying to persuade people to adopt a new technology, you know, new messaging system in your company or a new strategic plan, launch it on a Monday, launch it on the first of the month, launch it on the day after a long vacation, pick those fresh start dates. I think you'll have a marginally better chance of getting adoption. Deciding when to start is vital. Like Dan shared, researchers at Penn have found that individuals are far more likely to habitually go to the gym if they start on a Monday, if they start after New Year's, or after a public holiday, or even at the start of the month. The same is true for us marketers. In an earlier episode of Nudge called Habit Moulding Marketing, I ran an experiment on this fresh start effect. I recruited 100 participants via Google surveys who had declared that they don't listen to podcasts currently. I then created two messages. The control message said, 
would you consider listening to a new podcast in the next few days? And the fresh start variant simply said, would you consider listening to a new podcast next Monday? So one frames the ask in terms of, you know, the next few days, just a period of time. The other frames the ask in terms of a fresh start next Monday, start of a new week. Would you do something new? Only 9.1% of the participants who saw the first message, the control, said they would try a new podcast. But 15.9% of the participants who saw the fresh start variant said they would try a new podcast. That's a 75% increase with just a two-word tweak to the messaging. It's clear that picking the right date to start is important, and not just for marketing or habit forming. In the book When, Dan Pink shares that schools that start later in the day see a dramatic increase in student performance. Attendance rose and grades rose in English and maths. At one school, the number of car crashes fell by 70%. So starting at the wrong time can have equivalent negative effects. Employees who entered a job market during a depression earned less than others who entered during a a bullish period. They earned less than others for 20 years on average. That's £100,000 loss in earnings depending on when you start your job. Enough about starts though. What about midpoints? Here's Dan explaining why midpoints are so important. Um, there's some interesting research on midpoints showing that um, when like so, so for a project, if you're trying to motivate people for a project, that being slightly behind at the midpoint is very motivating, that when you get to the midpoint of something and you're way ahead, the second half, you can risk complacency. If you get to the midpoint and you're way behind, you can give up. But there's some fascinating evidence that if you get to the midpoint and you're slightly behind uh, your performance in the second half is accelerated, it's it's deepened. There are plenty of studies that back this up, but two really stood out. One looked at basketball teams that were one point behind at half-time. The researchers found that being one point behind gives that team a better chance of winning than similar teams who are one point ahead. That's right, losing by one point at half-time actually makes you more likely to win than being one point ahead. Why is this? Well, according to the researchers, being behind is a better motivator than being ahead, even though one point is a relatively small and easy-to-surmount margin. Tests show that people cut corners in the middle too. They literally cut corners. A test which asked people to cut out eight shapes as neatly as possible found that the average, most crudely cut-out shape were always the middle ones, the third, the fourth, and the fifth shapes. The start shapes, the ending shapes, they're okay, but people rushed in the middle. Okay, so what about endings? How do they affect us? Well, Dan tells me that endings can make you more likely to run a marathon. Find out why after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. 
Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. Here's Dan explaining how endings affect us. There's some fascinating research about how endings affect us, um, how endings can be persuasive. We see this, you know, with, with some of the research on deadlines or even, you know, only 30 minutes left in this special offer, right? Tick, 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 tick. You're, you're, you're seeing that. And we have some interesting research showing that people are more likely to run their first marathon at ages 29, 39, 49, and 59 for no logical reason except that the odometer is going to click to a zero before long. And so they want to do something um, before then. Uh, there's other evidence in marketing showing that uh, giving people um, uh, less time to do something, a shorter fuse, can sometimes get them to act more quickly. So if you have a, there's a famous study of, of gift cards where you give people a gift card that people who have only three weeks to use a gift card are much more likely to use it than people who have two, a full two months, that people who had more time to do something did it less because that ending was less salient. Like Dan said, marathon signups for those in an age ending in nine, like 29, 39, 49, 59, they are significantly higher. In fact, you are 48% more likely to sign up to your first marathon if you're on one of those ages. I think that's pretty exciting, but unfortunately, it's not all good. Death certificates show that suicide rates are much higher for those with a nine ending age. And data from Ashley Madison, the website that enables extramarital affairs, found that people are more likely to cheat on their partner if they have a nine ending age. Like Dan said, though, deadlines are important as well. A deadline too far in the future can make gift vouchers worthless, but no deadline can be even worse. One study with a bank that was supporting non-profits found that loan applications increased by 24% when the applicants were given a deadline compared to open-ended applications. So if you've got a job posting, stick a deadline on it and that'll actually increase the number of applicants you get. Now I'll just finish by adding a bit more on endings. It turns out that if we know an ending is coming, it changes our perception. In fact, knowing a meal is coming to an end makes it taste nicer. In tests where participants are given chocolates but don't know how many chocolates they're going to be given, when they're told this is your last chocolate rather than this is your next chocolate, they rate it as the best tasting chocolate, that last one, 64% of the time. When you're told this is your last chocolate and you and you eat it and you rate it, you say it as the best tasting 64% of the time, even when the chocolates otherwise are considered equal by other participants who, who don't eat them last. I guess it's sort of no wonder why desserts taste so good, right? When we know it's the last thing we're eating, we, we, we enjoy it more. So remind people when something is coming to an end, as it will force them to pay attention. Now, we've covered a lot here. Ultimately, timing is important. But what about the conclusion? How should we use this knowledge to improve our own performance and improve our happiness? I asked Dan. So I, I think the big takeaway here is, you know, obviously knowing the research, but also more broadly just recognizing that you know we are temporal creatures you know we are you know we have it's not like we have a biological clock we have biological clocks in every something akin to a biological clock in every cell in our body there's a part of our brain that regulates the the clocks of every other part of our body i mean we're 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 essentially timepieces in a you know in a way 
and we're moving through time. You know, our, you know, um, yesterday is in the past. Tomorrow's in the future. Whoa, that's kind of freaky, right? And so if we're just conscious of that we're temporal creatures moving through time, we can be intentional about the when of our decisions and our actions in a way that can redound to our benefit. For me, the takeaway is simple. Don't assume that timing has a negligible impact. It doesn't. It has a big impact. And when you're planning a project, making a crucial decision, or attempting to build a habit, consider when you'll start it. Because timing affects our perception of all sorts of things. I'll leave you with my favourite study on timing. In Dan's book, When, he cites a study that tried to determine what made people like their boss. Was it the amount of one-to-ones they had? Was it the amount of positive feedback they got? Was it the amount of support they received, or even the salary bumps they were given? Nope. The biggest indicator that an employee will like their boss is how fast the boss responded to emails. The quicker they responded, the more they were liked. That's the power of timing. All right, that is all for today, folks. If you like this episode, you will enjoy episode 68 of Nudge. In that episode, I share how I used the science of timing to prepare for an ultramarathon and how I somehow finished that marathon in second place. It was my first ever ultramarathon. I used this timing principle to in my training and somehow finished in second place. I also share how timing might have caused the end of the Cold War. So hopefully that's whetted your appetite. It is a cracking listen. So go and check out episode 68 if you haven't already. I've dropped a link to it in the show notes. Please also go and pick up a copy of Dan Pink's book, When. It's an incredible resource of information, all on the science behind timing. We've only scratched the surface of Dan's research, so go and grab a copy to learn more. As always, you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Search Phil Agnew on there and you'll find me. And please do sign up for my newsletter for psychology-inspired tips in your inbox every other week. The link to do so is in the show notes. Okay, folks, that is all for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge.